Welcome to Famous Lost Words, where we dig up classic interviews from the archives and play the very best bits for you. I'm here with my co-host, creator of the show, Tom Jokic. And I'm here with Christopher Ward, the original Much Music VJ, as well as an artist himself, an acclaimed songwriter, and an author. And you know, I feel pretty good about myself until I list your achievements, sir. Well, and there is my lentil soup, too, so... You're well known for your lentil soup. Is that what you're saying? Yes. (laughs) Mostly known for that. Okay, Christopher, let's start the show with a question. Okay. We all sing in the shower, right? What song can you, and you're a good singer, Uh, what song can you nail in the shower that you would never, ever sing in public? Bobby Darin, Beyond the Sea. Oh, somewhere. <laughs> you see, you can't resist. Uh, would I sing that in public? Probably not. But if I started snapping my fingers, somewhere beyond the sea. <laughs> okay, hang on. I'm going to add a little bit of uh, echo. My love and I'm gonna, stands. Just hang on. I'm going to add a little bit of echo, and I'm going to add the sound of water, okay? Go ahead. Go ahead. Somewhere. Beyond the sea, somewhere waiting for me. <laughs> I can't see you all laugh. This is really Happy rare. will be beyond. Oh, man. Yeah. That's sort of tune, though. That's good. All right. The water's running. I think you're going to like it. I'm going to put a little bit of um, lime juice on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I get to sing now. Yeah, you get to okay, sing. What's, well, I, what, what's it going to be? Well, the song that I literally sing in the shower, but... I would never in front of anyone else try this song out. With karaoke, with a lot of lubrication, I would not do this. <laughs> Is I Can't Make You Love Me by Bonnie Raitt. I just love oh. singing that song, right? Wow. There's no way I can hit any of those notes. But in the shower, it sounds pretty good. But no, I'm not going to try it right now. It is truly a great song, so I see why you would want to sing it in the shower. And I'm yes. so grateful that, that's, <laughs> that, it, that it stops there, you know? <laughs> That's it. All right, we got a show to do, buddy. What do we got this week? Oh, Christopher, you've got to admit, this 1993 interview with Keith Richards is sensational. Did you not love it? I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Because, you know, he's so understated because you just think he's barely conscious at times during interviews. But then some gem will slip out as to how the stones work or how he writes or just different observations about stagecraft. And I, I, I was blown away by this. Yeah. And the weird feeling about this interview is when you're done listening to it, see if you agree with me that Keith at this point is much happier in his touring band, The Expensive Winos, than he is with The Rolling Stones. That becomes, I think, plainly obvious. Would you not agree with that? I do agree. And it's interesting because... You know, he strikes as one of those guys, he's a musician, more than a rock star, I would say. So you'd think he would relish the opportunity to kind of, you know, back up, you know, on stage so that he lets Mick take the light and all of that. But in the expensive winos, it's all on him. Yeah. And yet he wears that cloak so comfortably. Oh, yeah, he sure does. So also coming up this week, in addition to Keith Richards, is one of the most entertaining and energetic interviews from our archives, a 2003 chat with Cindy Lauper. She visited our morning show with Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis back then and was just amazing and funny. And yes, she even does the weather forecast, and it is hilarious. Plus, we have a mid-to-late 1970s interview with Steve Miller from his heyday, Christopher, I know you find Steve rather uh, 
unbearable at times. <laughs> He's shaking his head vigorously right now. But I know you'll agree that this is a really interesting set of clips. Okay, let's get started with Keith Richards. From 1968, Rolling Stones and Jumpin' Jack Flash with Keith Richards playing that just sloppy punky guitar. I love that riff. I love that riff. In fact, I think it's the one that he says is his personal favorite. That's great. Mm -hmm. It's 2003, and Keith Richards has taken a much-needed break from the Rolling Stones. But taking a break did not mean stopping working. Keith got his buddy, drummer Steve Jordan, together with guitarist Waddy Wachtel, Stone stalwart Bobby Keys on sax, Ivan Neville, son of Aaron, on keys, and Jerome Smith on bass, and called them the expensive winos. <laughs> Classic Keith, right? Yes, it is. Yeah. So at the time of this interview, he was returning to Toronto, home of many adventures in his life and career, good and bad. But Keith is clearly jazzed about playing with a new group in smaller halls and to a dedicated group of fans. Mm-hmm. He's having fun, and it shows. Referring to the Stones, check out what happens when God joins the band. <laughs> what are your feelings about coming back and playing in Toronto? In Toronto, obviously, I mean special place to me for many reasons but it, I mean to me it's always important to come back here because of what I went through here you know I mean I, I mean I was feeling like saying up there but I thought well I went through this joking you know yeah. well it's always a pleasure to come back to Toronto well nearly always you know <laughs> after all the stuff but I mean I think Toronto has a special sort of affection for me because they knew that I was Leonard Pong you know then I mean yeah I was guilty as you know, but there was obviously so much else involved, and, and hey, Toronto and me have been mixed up and broiled in loads of stuff over the years, and so in a way, I just feel privileged to come back in. Hell, they could just say, you know, you screwed up here, go away. And to play a hall like this, this is like a Carnegie, man. This is, uh, my career might be going uphill again. Playing a good room, you know? You, you must be enjoying the tour then because you're probably playing a lot of rooms like this and you must really enjoy it. Yeah, that. it is, and it's great. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons that the winos exist. Is, uh, as much as I enjoy going out in the cutting edge in, in football stadiums with the Stones, if that's all you do, I mean, it's a bizarre existence for a musician. You know? I mean, this guy called God joins the band every night, you know, in the form of wind, rain, uh, heat cold, whatever, thunder, lightning. You, know, you don't have a controlled environment, in other words. You know, it's not an even playing field. You know? The wind's going across the stage. Some guy you don't want gets the best sound in the world, you know? but it's two miles down the road. You know? So you, know, you get this guy, God, joining the band. So for me, with the wino, it's very important to be able to play good roots, you know, have the joy and the pleasure, and I keep my feet on the ground. And also, I know that I can face my people. I mean, I have crazy fans. I mean, bless their hearts and everything. They're nuts, all of them, and they know it. But I love them dearly, you know. I mean, there's a special warmth and a special feeling, and even more so in this town, maybe because of what we went through it, you know? Okay, for those of you who are not familiar, with Keith's history with the city of Toronto, he got into some of the worst trouble of his life in Toronto in 1977 when he was arrested for possessing heroin, quote, with the intent to traffic, a charge that could have resulted in a prison term of seven years to life. His passport was confiscated for more than a month 
His family and him were trapped in Toronto. It was a wild time. The charges were later reduced, and part of his sentence, Christopher, I don't know if you remember this. I remember this. Was to play two benefit concerts for the blind, Mm -hmm. which he and the Stones did in Oshawa, Ontario in 1979, and that's about a 15-minute drive from my place, (laughs) from my current home. And by the way, to hear an amazing backstage interview with Keith and Mick from that day, you can hear it after the closing credits of this episode. Some great bonus content. Okay, back to our Keith interview from 1993 with Keith Richards and Steve Warden. If you have any doubt, Tom, about who wrote Gimme Shelter, listen closely. You come to the, almost to the end of the concert and you play happy and it really, without sounding corny, it really does sum it up, like the feeling standing up in the balcony in the audience, everybody's on their feet. I You're him, man. like in heaven, that song just, it's perfect, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, even for the Stone Show, it's the best closer, you know what I mean? Is that you can't beat how people close in the show. <laughs> it's like a mantra and you can just keep it going as long as you want. It's not difficult to play, it's difficult to play well. If you use it right, it's a beautiful end. As I say, I want to leave you like I found you, you know what I mean? Well, you don't leave them like you found them, Keith. You leave them a little bit better off, I think. Oh, well, that's all right. I mean, I just want to leave them happy. And you know, they're happy when they get there, and I leave them happy. They're happier. That's fantastic. That's an evil, menacing version of Gimme Shelter. Yeah, you like that? Yeah, yeah, that's the way it was cut. I mean, I wouldn't have done that song. Steve Jordan found a bootleg copy of uh, myself singing over the Stones one when I was showing Mick how I was going to go. And when he played me that, I said, OK, I'll do it. Now I get it. Now I can handle it. Otherwise, the idea of doing that would have... Uh, I wouldn't have wanted to do it, not to encroach on Stones' territory that much, except that I heard that I said, yeah, I mean, Mick sang it a different way, it went a different way. And I am, I'm evil and I'm menacing. It's a terrible thing. <laughs> Only my daughters don't think so. Just don't bring them to the shows for a couple of years. (laughs) That's wild to think that there's a bootleg out there with Keith showing Mick how to sing Gimme Shelter. (laughs) I'd love to hear that. For sure. (laughs) Tom, Keith says the Stones do things the hard way in contrast to the Winos tour. Keith, tell me a little bit about playing with the Winos on this tour as opposed to the the first time out. What's what's the evolution of the band been like? It's ten times more confident. It's... uh... They're working my ass off, if you pardon the expression. I mean, we go back to the hotel room and now everybody will talk about what wasn't right and how they could improve this. Oh, let me hear that thing. Every night is like honing it down. It's a heavy fencing class, you know. I mean, this band never don't let you go. You can't cruise on this band. I mean, and maybe I'm in spot, but the Stones, I have a cruising position. I can put myself out in the front there as much as I want to support Mick, or if the music's not right, I can hunker back down there with Charlie Watts and Ronnie Wood and say, hey, let's pull our thing together. I have an option. But I think it's good for me. I enjoy it. These guys are killing me. To have one good band in a lifetime is a miracle. Two, hey, I'm blessed, you know? Last time we talked, you mentioned uh, about your kind of divided loyalties and feeling split between the two bands and now you're a couple of months into this tour I would imagine at this point you're feeling even more drawn into the winery situation well in a way it's very difficult to sort of think of the ideas of closing you know the winos draw in like a pigeonhole and opening stones draw in two months and then we're going to do it what I'm looking really forward to doing and, and doing is that 
one thing spills over into another. There's no reason why it has to be pigeonholed like that. Uh, I think that kind of showed itself with the Almost Here You Sigh on, uh, on Steel Wheels, which Steve and I had basically, you know, we'd got the song together and Mick finished it off because he loved it so much and he wanted to do it. I think whatever Mick's doing, whatever Ronnie's doing, Charlie's doing, we need extra input. The Stones can't keep going in a vacuum anymore. I mean, I guess that's fairly obvious. We found out the hard way by yelling at each other for five years, you know, but we always do things the hard way, you know. But at the same time, these guys give me other possibilities. The Stones got too big for me to really be able to know that I can get the best out of them. Because uh, when you're, on, you're operating on that scale, that is a juggernaut, and it's a sort of Frankenstein you know, it's all flying. You know, I mean, it's, uh, you've created this thing and you're very grateful for it. And at the same time, you wonder who's working for who. <laughs> you know, I mean, are the Stones working for me? Am I working for the Stones? Is this really. I think to keep that band together in the future, and I think there's a definite possibility of some great Stone stuff. I mean, I'm not ruling out another golden period. If everything falls into place and the full moons come in the right place, I need to be well oiled. I mean, it's not like I'm using this band for practice, you know. I mean, this to me is that hey, I have somewhere else to go. It's crazy to hear him talking about the Stones in the past tense, almost 25 years ago, and obviously they kept going after that. And boy, does he seem pumped about the Y notes. It's like he's just discovered that he has a viable existence outside of the Stones, and he's so giddy about it. Yeah, he really is. In this clip, Keith says the winos are all about loyalty and friendship. And you can see why those ties would be strained at times with the Stones. Do you have to put yourself in a different mode when you go back and play with the Stones after you've fronted your own band? It's hard to think about. I'm going to miss the winos. Obviously, it's very hard to switch things. I mean, to me, a band is about loyalty and it's about friendship. And what you go through and going on the road, uh, you know, that's what makes a band. It's going to be very difficult for me. To, I'm going to miss these guys. I don't want them to feel that, you know, oh, now he's off with the stones. You know, that's the way it could come off, you know, but it, it ain't like that. Um, I think every, you know, one thing contributes to another, and maybe these guys can contribute to the next stones in the same way. There's songs to be written, there's production needed, there's all kinds of input needed, you know, and so... I like to think that one thing can work into another. Because what I really like to think about is that the winos would be there the next time around. Because it's too fascinating a band to sort of say, oh, well, that's it, close up the shop. You know, not have to put all this much into it. This band is raring to go. You know? Enjoying life on the road these days? I always enjoy it. I always feel good on the road. I mean, I've just been doing it so long, I guess the metabolism is used to it. You know, I've lost 20 pounds, which is a lot for a guy, little guy like me. <laughs> I'm back to fighting weight. (laughs) (laughs) That's Keith Richards in conversation with Steve Warden backstage at a live show in Toronto in 1993. Another nugget from the famous Lost Words archive. Wasn't that great? I loved it. A gem. Thank you for digging that one up, buddy. My pleasure. I'm telling you, it's like my eyes widened when I discovered that I had this. It was great. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Still, lots more to come. Indeed, we still have Steve Miller from the 70s, but up next, an incredible and really fun 2003 chat with Cindy Lauper. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. From 1983, She's So Unusual, 
and Girls Just Want to Have Fun by Cindy Lauper. Tom, there's only one Cindy Lauper, and she's had an incredibly varied career with massive success at the outset. We, we talk about big success, but this was on another planet. Her debut album, She's So Unusual, sold 16 million copies. That just doesn't happen anymore. It led to an MTV award, and of course, video was crucial to her career. Also, a Best New Artist Grammy. Uh, she was part of the We Are the World session. And perhaps the biggest career peak, she toured with Hulk Hogan. <laughs> it's part of a long-standing association with the wrestling world. That's right. She was also, and this is, this maybe not everyone knows this, but she was the first woman to win a Tony Award for Best Original Score for the show Kinky Boots, which I saw and which was fabulous. Yes. Um, she released an album of standards, including a duet with Tony Bennett in 2002 called at last. This mm -hmm. brought her to Toronto, led her to this interview with the peerless team of Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis. In this segment, Cindy talks about playing in Toronto with a surprise guest. Please welcome Cindy Lover Cindy! to our studio. Hey, hello. Hello. How are you? Boy, nice to meet you after all these years. Yeah. I've never had the pleasure you of meeting you before. It's a treat. A bit. You look no. fantastic. Like the same way you did on that album jacket of 1983. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. How much do I owe you? <laughs> so here you are. You're in town. As it turns out, you're in town the same time that Cher is here for her yeah. final concert of her That's farewell right. tour. And you were here right. for Happy the first Halloween. concert of yes, her I farewell was. tour. Yes, I was. Yeah, you yes. performed. You opened up. And your, your uh, young son was on stage playing drums at that show. <laughs> yes. Yes, he was. He um, he he actually. I, I played a place uh, in the summer, and he called from the pizza parlor, and he said, "Mom, guess where I am?" I said, "Where are you, Dick?" He said, "I'm in the pizza parlor." I said, "That's good." He said, "Guess what?" I said, "Well," he said, "They played Girls Just Want to Have Fun on the radio," and I'm sitting here. I said, "That's great," and he said. And he turned around and he, he held the, he said, anybody want to talk to Cindy? And then, <laughs> I was like, Dick, you know, he was sitting with his girlfriends from nursery school. Yeah. And right. uh, yeah, those were his wives. He had his wives and his honeys. Now, how old is he? Five. He's five. five. <laughs> and, yeah. He's and then, five. And then he said, then he gets back on the phone and he says, Mom, I am playing Sunday, right? Aww. Yeah, I said, yeah, deck yard. And then we had a band meeting because, you know, it, like in Toronto, he kept getting up. I was singing and I felt a tug and I looked down and there he was, you know. <laughs> and singing? I had to hold the mic, sing and take his sweater off. And it was good because yeah. I didn't even think about multitasking. It just, <laughs> it just comes naturally. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my goodness. Cindy Lauper's personality <laughs> in a nutshell, in one yeah. single clip, so likable. I love it. She's adorable, right? Yeah. She dug deep for the songs for her, at the time, new album, in particular, Until You Came Back to Me. Well, you've got a great new CD out. Thank you. It's called At Last. And uh, you and I were just talking about the selections of songs. And you, you have a great selection of songs, but why did you choose the songs that you, you chose for the CD? Well, you know, like, some of my songs are a backdrop for people's lives. These are the songs that were a backdrop for my childhood. And um, I wanted to be more specific. I, you know, I, it was, I was given the opportunity to arrange and interpret songs, which is, you know, it's like a kid in a candy shop. Okay, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. that means let's go, you know. So I, I, I decided to choose songs that um, 
that first were really famous so you could hear the interpretations. Right. And also songs that were playing on the radio from my childhood. You know, I always felt like my voice sounded like that time period. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, then I realized that it was because that's... I wasn't personally listening to him, but my cousin and my mom. Right, big And all the grown-ups were listening. You know, I was wrecking my mother's records before Mm -hmm. I, you know, had my own. So the first, Mm -hmm. the the song that we're going to hear today Mm -hmm. is a song that Aretha Franklin did. Stevie Wonder wrote it, and he actually played on it. And it, which is unbelievable. And uh, what year is this out, Roger? Aretha had it out in '73. Yeah, yeah. '73. Yeah. I thought it was a '60s song. No, it's it's early '70s. Yeah, early '70s. Yeah. Maybe '72. Because uh, Stevie told me. <laughs> Excuse me, don't worry, it's only a sword's cough. Okay. <laughs> um, We've got it too. It's I'm okay. kidding. <laughs> yes, I know. I got the yellow paper. Can we shake hands <laughs> yeah, now? Yeah, we no. can shake hands now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, now, uh, you know, Stevie told me he wrote that song when he was 13, so that would have had wow. to be in the 60s. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of when I remembered it. I didn't realize it was the 70s. I thought I was choosing songs from the 60s. <laughs> but um, it was written. You still have the roots of it. There you yeah, go. Yeah. Well, the song kind of has its lineage now because, um, you know, when when I thought of... I, first of all, you know, it's always tempting when you take a song like that because Aretha, that's the godmother of soul, and she mm-hmm. taught us everything like singers to taught us everything about singing so your natural inc- inclination is you know do the aretha riff you know but <clears throat> there's only one mm-hmm. aretha mm-hmm. so um i uh i decided to do um the opposite mm-hmm. and when i was pulling the song apart i realized you know this isn't working and usually if you slow it down and you do it over and over again you can hear the stops of the song naturally, right. how it's written. Right. And then I thought, well, I have to change the rhythm. And I had recently gotten, uh, I was working with Russ Teitelman, and he was telling me how great this um, this rhythm track was from Big Mama Thornton's Hound Dog. And to mm-hmm. me, a lot of people think that Elvis mm-hmm. is, you know, was the first rock and roll, but to me, it's Big Mama Thornton. Yeah. Because that's rock and roll. It's not blues. It's mm-hmm. rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Elvis was more country. So that was like country and blues. It wasn't rock and roll. Mm-hmm. It was just as much rock and roll as she was. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of Big Mama Thornton in Until You Come Back to Me I by took Cindy the track. I took the rhythm track. I took the rhythm track. And I, um, I decided to do it like a loop. All right. But he played live. That's Cindy Lauper with a cool story about working with Stevie Wonder. And you'll remember a recent episode, Christopher. Another artist spoke about the thrill of working with Stevie, and that was Alicia Keys. And we have another artist coming up who will tell us about her work with Stevie. We'll leave that one a mystery for now. Oh, that's right. Still more to come with Cindy Lauper, including one of the oddest and funniest moments in our show's history. This is Famous Lost Words. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. What would you do if you had access to one of the greatest interview archives in history? Oh, 
This sounds like some sort of crazy fantasy to me. <laughs> well, you made that a reality, my friend. Every week we dig up more interviews, find the best parts, and play them back for you. And you can get caught up with more than 100 certified bingeable episodes to keep you company as you go about your day. Find us on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or any other major podcast platform. And don't forget to follow the show and tell the music fan in your life about Famous Lost Words. Okay, this week, it's a really fun chat with Cindy Lauper in 2003. Here's Cindy in conversation with Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis. Well, Cindy Lauper, tonight Cher finally ends her long-running Living Proof farewell tour in Toronto. Do you remember wow. when it started? Yep. You were there. I was here. Yeah. Do you yeah. enjoy the show? Did you get to see the show a lot? Yeah. Did you? She's pretty amazing. I like the opening. Uh, the opening was... Uh, the, everything. The, the montage of everything that she's ever done, or the opening as the opening act, you. <laughs> no, darling. <laughs> the chandelier. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, no, uh, her entrance, it's grand. It is grand. It you is know? grand. And so tonight, the village people will be there, Thelma Houston, Sister Sledge. Are you going to be in the audience? Are you going to show up? Are you going to... Or am I, I don't gonna, know. Am I it's Halloween and, yeah. and my child. I might. I might. I, I got to see what. Okay. Is. Are you flying back to New York today? I think You're, so. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And what's he dressing up as? Zorro. All right. <laughs> oh, you can tell that Cindy is fully into motherhood right there. And I wonder if her son is as amused by her as we are. Can you mm. imagine? By no. the way, that five-year-old boy is now almost in his mid-20s. Yeah. Well, early on, there would have been some serious eye rolling. I know my daughter does that. It sounds like a pinball machine, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You're going to injure your eyes if you keep doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Here she talks about working with the great Tony Bennett. You always are your own person. You always, like, you, you, you did your own thing. You didn't really go with the, with the flow of what other people were doing. You came out with uh, great songs, and you were, you know, bright and, you know, fun. and Fun. And... And you've always stayed true to that. You always have. The spirit has not been broken. Well, you know, that would be sad if yeah, I did yeah. get my spirit broken. No, I, I don't I don't subscribe to following along like a sheep. No. It's not my thing. No, I was great. looking at the CD and some of the songs that you did. What was it like making Whoopi with Tony Bennett? <laughs> Listen, I would have sung the alphabet with Tony Bennett. He was like yeah. a national institution in my neighborhood. Sure. Yeah. You know, you heard his voice everywhere. When I met him... No, I, I know him, but when I saw him, actually, I was fooling around, and I said, Tony, you remember me? Like, do you remember? I was, we were at the World's Fair. You were coming down the escalator. I was going up, pigtails <laughs> and uh, pedal bushes. I waved. <laughs> he kind of, like, had a glazed look on his face, and he looked at me, and he said, yeah, kid, you know. Yeah. But um, he was pretty, uh, he's, he's pretty great, and, you know, it, it was a trip because, you know, I went to him. It was his band and the studio he was he liked. Yes. And he sings without any headphones. Really? Hmm. And he's in the room, and you're in the room, and you don't have headphones. It was kind of it was it was kind of a great experience for me. Of course, he reminded me. You know, he I didn't learn the whole song because I wanted to really learn it with the band. Mm -hmm. And he um, he said, you know, Katie, she's amazing. She closes her eyes. She knows all the words. You know. I was like, yeah, I don't like me, you know, <laughs> you know, but no. Um, Who do you mean, Katie, Katie Lang? Lang? Katie Lang, yeah, yeah. Right. Katie's yeah. Katie's great. Mm -hmm. I yeah. wanted to do all three of us together. I wanted it to be the vocal ease, 
Katie, Tony, Cindy. Yeah, that's great. But uh, they they didn't really go for that. Listen, thanks very much for coming in. It was a pleasure meeting you. Great to have you here. Hey, what does that mean? Like, here's your hat, what's your hurry? Yeah, well, we got to go, too. We got to go, too, because Ingrid's on the air. All right, hey, hiya. You're still looking for those people in the 80s. That's right. (laughs) Thanks very much for coming in. Cindy Lauper, our special guest. The CD comes out November 18th. It's so good to see in person. Everybody in the building is surrounding this room. I, I haven't seen that in a oh. long time. It's because Cindy Lopper's yeah. here. The staff is here. Yeah. And we had Josh Stone in earlier this morning. you familiar with Josh? She's 16 years old. She was in a couple of hours ago and sang a, a, a great R&B song called The Choking Kind. You'll like that CD, but you can't have it because that's mine. All right. I mean, that's not like any any thing uh, you asked me to sing and I said it's too early, right? But I see your true From 1986, that's True Colors, the wonderful Cindy Lauper. And if you thought we were finished with Cindy, wait, there's more. Cue the guest weather girl, Tom. Now with the weather, ladies and gentlemen, today's forecast for Toronto here is Cindy Lauper. From Cindy. Queens. <laughs> I'm speaking the Queens English to all of you out there. <laughs> Increasing cloudiness this morning, windy and mild at 20. Celsius. That's oh, okay, that, that's because warm. that would be chilly. That's 68 okay. Fahrenheit. That's right. That's 68 Fahrenheit. Right. Thank goodness you told me that. There's a 60% chance of showers. Don't forget your umbrellas. That's later on this afternoon and this evening. Cloudy tonight, low 7. Oh, that's, oh. that's 44 Fahrenheit. No. Oh, thank goodness, because 7 is really cold. Pretty darn cold. Right, <laughs> right. It does get chilly up here. Occasionally. Yeah, I heard the lake freezes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That would be scary if you only had a light coat. All right. Tomorrow, cloudy and sunny periods. High around 12. 54. 54 Fahrenheit, yes. Thank goodness. I got a translator. That's important. Sunday, cloudy. 60% chance of showers. High 13. That must be around the same thing as 12. 56. Yes. <laughs> Monday, showers. High 14. You're just going up a little bit. Yeah, and, just a little yeah, there gradually. Go. And Tuesday, sun and cloud. Uh, doesn't that mean sunny and cloudy? Yes. Yes, I'm yeah. sorry. That's the yeah. little, that's just, the it, that's the weather lingo. We're in a hurry here. Okay, so. sorry. And 16 and uh, 30% chance of showers. So there you go. There's that the weather. There. Okay. You'll notice the warmest day is the day that you're in Toronto. Right? Yeah. Today's the warmest of all those days because yeah. of your visit to the city. It's also See? Halloween. It's also Happy Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> there you go. The irrepressible Cindy Lauper. Christopher, it's so odd. Like in that moment where... Someone comes up with the idea. So I was in the room at the time when Cindy was being interviewed by Roger Ashby and Marilyn Dennis on our morning show. And this is, you know, 2003. We are having a riot with her. And right at the end, we've already said goodbye to her. But right at the end, we figure, let's get Cindy to read the weather. Now, that can go, <laughs> that can honestly go one of three ways. It can be like awful. Yes. But I can't imagine her doing something like that mm, yeah. would be awful. It can be really boring. Mm-hmm. And then there's how it turned out. It's just so funny. It's such a it's such a ridiculously simple idea. Get Cindy to read the weather. And it was so funny. And it's also funny when Roger does the Fahrenheit <laughs> yeah. translation I know, for I the Celsius that. impaired Cindy. Yeah. <laughs> 
I think the closest I came to that was we had the rock. We had news segments called Rock Flash uh, at right. Much Music. And I remember asking Sandra Bernhardt if she wanted to do the Rock Flash. And she was like, yeah, sure. And she just proceeded to trash everyone in sight. So it was pretty funny, <laughs> <laughs> including Madonna, <laughs> who I believe was her friend. Oh, boy. Oh, wow. Yeah. She really let yeah. her have it. Yeah. There you go. Cindy Lauper on Famous Lost Words. Okay, coming up next. This is an odd one. Steve Miller from the 70s, both grateful for the life that he has and in true 70s rock star fashion, complaining about all of it. That's next on Famous Lost Words. Welcome back to Famous Lost Words, where we find classic interviews from the archives and play the best parts for you. From 1976, one of Steve Miller's biggest hits, Fly Like an Eagle. Tom, Steve Miller was brought up in a musical home, very musical, and he started playing the blues as a young man. Regular visitors to the Miller home included uh, guitar virtuoso and inventor Les Paul and the great bluesman T-Bone Walker. Now, once he found a way to include pop influences in his music, his direction was clear, and it made for an unbelievable string of hits, including, as you mentioned, The Joker, Space Cowboy, Fly Like an Eagle, and a whole lot more. Steve was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2016, without clarifying exactly what the Pompadus of Love is. Um, but that's okay. You know there's a movie with that title called The Pompadus of Love? <laughs> of course there is. It's just such a weird line from a song. That's from The Joker. Just weird enough. Yes. Um, so what follows is rambling, confounding at times, at least for your co-host here, <laughs> um, but definitely entertaining. Steve, take it away, buddy. <laughs> Steve talks about writing The Joker, although he sounds like he's making up the story to me as he goes along. Yeah. That was really funny because I uh, met some girls, was invited out to a party in the midst of the backwoods, and I went out to this place and there was this funky old shack out there and there were about four or five different musicians staying there, maybe ten musicians and just a bunch of people. and. It was just a country party, and uh, we were jamming and playing, and everybody got kind of tired, and we were uh, we went outside, and we were just all laying out in the grass, looking at the stars, and just started writing this tune. I, I had a few verses and stuff, and everybody just sort of threw it together. I'm a joker, I'm a smoker, I'm a midnight toker, I get my love in all. From 1973, that's The Joker by Steve Miller Band. And Steve had a great run after the Joker album broke through. And his next two albums were monsters. But here's a cool music fact for you, Christopher. Mm -hmm. The basic tracks for the albums Fly Like an Eagle and Book of Dreams were recorded in the same session. Wow. Released, what, a year apart? And those albums yielded six hit singles. I don't think I've ever heard of that before. No, that is crazy. He laid all the basic tracks down. I guess he had just this kind of monumental winning streak. I, You know what I wonder now, having heard this story for the first time, is I wonder if he laid down the tracks, but whether there was no songs yet. In other words, the melodies and the lyrics were not defined and yeah. yet to be determined, but he had, you know, the feel and the, the, the chord changes and so on. Sure. Because that's a way of working, of course. Yeah. And by the way, just, just backtracking a little bit, was he making that stuff up about the, 
the writing of the Joker. And oh, who knows? Like he was certainly well, didn't he going go from off- there, Like there were four people outside and then there were 10 people outside. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what? <laughs> it was a bit of a circuitous answer. Speaking of circuitous, okay. we're going to redefine that word with this next clip. I don't even know where to begin. This is right. one of those, if you give a rock star a microphone and he's not singing, sure, this is what can happen. And it's not pretty. Sure. And it's something about, I think, San Francisco. The San Francisco hippie scene, and he's reflecting on that. It just changed so fast. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, like 200,000 kids showed up, uh, you know, going, hey, this is San Francisco. Where are we going to stay? You know, and they ended up sleeping in the streets and stuff. It was pretty rough. It was an amazing thing that happened, but it got totally mismanaged. It was a very idealistic kind of situation. And whenever you have something that's balanced and worked like works like that, you know, L.A. got into it, and Scott McKenzie wrote a tune, you know, and the Mamas and Papas sold it as a big single. And, I mean, there were a lot of kids, man, who thought that's what was happening, and they all just ran away and came to San Francisco. And, and the after effects of it were really rough. I mean, there were a lot of bad drugs, a lot of mafia people, a lot of just... It just went from, like, really nice free concerts in the park in one city, you know, to, like, just a horrible commercial mess. Everybody just had to leave. Oh, dear. There is, like, I mean, he does make a point about how the hippie movement drew a lot of people to San Francisco and essentially ruined that whole hate Ashbury scene. I've heard that on more than one occasion. But that's a tired old trope, that one. <laughs> well, I know, but he made it in the mid-70s. Remember when this interview okay, was done. Okay, all right, all right. So I, you have I, to I give... need to be more forgiving of yes. Steve. Yeah. <laughs> well, Tom, apparently Steve wanted to live the anonymous life while being a rock star. See, like, I don't really, I truly don't want to be a personality in the sense, I don't want to go down to the Safeway and have people go, aren't you... You know, uh, would you right. sign this? Would you do this? Would you do that? You know, kind of stuff. And uh, so on my albums, man, I'd prefer to be kind of invisible. Oh, there are a number of artists who managed to remain faceless. The guys in Toto. Right. The guys in Supertramp. And Steve Miller, to name a few. Mm-hmm. Here he talks about not living the rock and roll life. I've, I've gone through lots of changes, man. I've come back from tours, cut my hair, gone and bought, you know, these kind of penny loafers and these kind of shirts and short sleeves. I've gone over to the casual shop in the shopping center and just, you know, 300 bucks worth of CIA clothes, you know, and I've just cruised, man, and looked at it from that way, too. It's real strange. Basically, I, I like to get into it and deal with the, with the music, and then I like to get real far away from it. I think a lot of the people involved in this are kind of romantics anyway. You know? Everybody approaches it differently, you know, like um, that could never be a rock and roll star 24 hours a day. You know, I'd just be so exhausted, you know, I'd, I'd have the flu and pneumonia in a month. Buddy Miles used to live up here. And uh, I remember Buddy came, I mean, Buddy is really a gracious guy as a neighbor. At 10 o'clock in the morning, he and his buddies would show up on uh, painted motorcycles. He'd have on a purple cape, you know, uh, <laughs> cow hoof boots and a black hat with rhinestones. And he'd come walking in here, and I'd just say, man, don't do that to me, man. Don't do that. Buddy was just rock and roll 24 hours a day, you know. And um, I, I don't know. <laughs> I've got to be able to, to go in and out of it. Being up on that farm, man, I'm concerned with how my hay is growing and whether I'm going to level out this field or do that. Those kind of problems do a lot more for me musically. 
You know, I don't mind that clip. That's great. He actually sounds pretty grounded and normal in that clip, not wanting to live the same life as Buddy Miles does, yeah. even though he's a big fan of Buddy. That's great. Well, the description of Buddy showing up is pretty funny. Yeah. With the, was that a purple cape? <laughs> yeah. I love that. And we're going to leave out the part where he talks about the chickens and his animals, right? We are. We go, okay. Yeah. So, so just, if just you're just joining us, us okay? yeah, if, you're, if you're just joining us, he talks about chickens and you, no, know, you don't need to hear you it. You really don't. No. All right. Here, for some reason, he has to defend the song, Take the Money and Run. The worst article I got and everything was from the San Rafael newspaper. I came home, a guy just completely attacked me personally. He said, said my lowbrow lyrics. Uh, <laughs> he said that Take the Money and Run was about two people who killed somebody in a pool hall. All it was was just uh, a little tale. It's just one of those kind of Bonnie and Clyde bank robber songs. Go on, take the money and run. 1976, Steve Miller Band. Man, that song and so many others that he wrote sounded amazing on the radio around the summer of 1976. But aren't you amazed that people made him defend the song as if it was, you know, some kind of true story or... Yeah. As if he was promoting violence. It's insane. Yes. I mean, the, the murder ballad is a long tradition in folk music. And, yes, And there's certainly true. been a lot of Bonnie and Clyde type stories in country music. Mm. Um, and they're still great. You know, we have a clip from LaBelle, and I don't know if it's Patti LaBelle or Nona Hendrix from the band, uh, talking about Lady Marmalade. Oh. And all the beep they took from recording that song, right? Oh, right. And how kids in school were getting into trouble for singing the line, voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir, <laughs> in the halls of school, right? Right. Whoever it was on the, on the, uh, on the recording said, you know, I can understand that. I wouldn't want my kids singing that either. But, you know, they, they don't think of that when they're recording that song, which, by the way, is one of the classic soul songs of the 70s. But anyway, there you go. Sometimes people have to defend songs. And now for some complaining. <laughs> Commercials have just completely undermined this whole country. Nobody knows what will turn things around. Yeah. You know, like, that's, that's what I figured out. Is, uh, that I got, after I did The Joker... I was real depressed, man, for about four months. I was just sitting there going, man, you know, I don't want to go down there. You know, I don't, I don't want to be in L.A. I don't, you know, I don't want to be on top of this. I don't want to do these television shows. These television shows aren't any fun, man. You know, they don't let you do anything. I know that Steve Miller and Burton Cummings are very close and they have a similar vibe. Really? Because they both have lots of opinions and just a hint of bitterness in some of the comments. Ah. Yeah, they are close friends. When oh. I talked to Burton uh, last year, um, he talked about how he and Steve Miller are still close. Wow. Yeah. And in our final Steve Miller clip, he tells us what his job on stage is. The most positive thing is uh, the music. You know, if you can really go to an audience and uh, move them and catch their attention, get them in an excited state and then make them feel and think about things that they haven't felt or thought before you know that to me is a real positive thing the other thing is just entertainment you know if you can just make people just hey all right you know it's saturday night and i spent 12 bucks and me and my girlfriend are here and we're gonna have a good time and we're having it it's just a very simple thing but that's really what it's about what it is about 
Not a bad rundown of the purpose of live performances. Mm -hmm. By the way, Steve Miller recently released a new live album. And when I say new, it's actually <laughs> from 1977. But it's been run through the Cuisinart and remixed, and it actually sounds pretty good. Are All you saying that 1977 is new for Steve? Yes, for Steve it is, yeah. No, they found some old footage, and he uh, uh. he was hesitant on putting it out. And I just listened to, to the album yesterday. And it is funny, because they are very good versions of the songs we know and love. Right. But honestly... Like a lot of live albums I love because they add a little bit more. These add nothing to the original songs, so I'd rather just listen to the original. Well, if he'd mixed the chickens up just a little bit, That's I think it would have been <laughs> way better. That does it for this week. Famous Lost Words is created and produced by my co-host, Tom Jokic, executive producer, Sarah Cummings. To binge the more than 100 past episodes, check out the iHeartRadio app or any podcast platform and just browse the library. We're confident you'll find something you'll like. Okay, as promised, here is some bonus content. As we discussed earlier, as part of his sentencing for his heroin arrest in Toronto in 1977, Keith Richards was required to play two shows as a benefit for the CNIB, that's the Canadian National Institute for the Blind. And after that show, journalist Cliff Lorimer, who is visually impaired, interviewed Keith. And as you'll hear, Mick Jagger joined the conversation. What's going to happen now? You've been successful in kicking the, the habit. What's going to happen now musically for Keith Richards? I should probably keep on longer than I would if I didn't keep the habit. <laughs> yeah. You feel better now? Oh, yeah. What, uh, you did some recording when you were in for the Alma Combo. You were checking out some studios. Whatever became of those sessions? I had the tapes and uh, stashed away at the right time. Mm -hmm. You did a, a Christmas record as well. Yeah, I put that out a little too late for Christmas, really. Mm. But it's still around, you know. I yeah. should probably end up doing what Bing Crosby did and put it out every year like he did with White Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Who backed you on that, Keith? Uh, I did. Me and uh, one, one other guy uh, used to play with Mick Taylor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, in fact, he was Canadian. Mm. A little drummer called... Uh, Forget it, it's like Mike, somebody. Oh, yeah. Now, what? Uh, let's talk briefly about the new Barbarians. How did you form this group, and what are your plans? Are you going to record it as a solo venture, like Yes and well, Who have done? Well, it's really not my band. It's Ronnie's. I'm just the guitar player. It's Ronnie's band that he's formed to take on the road to coincide with the release of his new album. You know. But it, I mean, it does seem to be showing some promise, and it would be a shame if we only did this one tour. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can keep it together on a loose kind of basis, you know, it'll be all right. What do you attribute the longevity of the Rolling Stones to? You've been together during the British invasion and right up to 1979. Long guitar straps. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I can't answer, I can't answer that one. Yeah. What do you think, Nick? Success. Success? Mm -hmm. Um, how, how do you and Keith go about writing songs? What, what influenced you in the, in the early days and what influences you in, in 1979? Well, in the early days, we, we didn't write anything, really. Uh, we just copied other people and we did write. And then when we started to write ballads, because we found that those kind of English folk ballads were the easiest kind of things. Mm -hmm. And then um, after that, we, we started to write rock and roll. It's difficult, you know, it's not... A, different shades of writing that we went through. What about the disco craze, Mick? Um, Miss You from Some Girls and, and Beast of Burden was sort of in the, in the disco vein. Are Stones going to head more that way or go on to the rock and roll like Shattered and uh, Well, like I don't think, I mean, I think the Stones, uh, uh, I hate to overuse the word eclectic, 
but um, you know that we've always been like uh, very much a dance band. So uh, mm. you know, I, I, I don't see us going in any particular direction. Mm. Were you pleased about uh, Keith's concert and uh, you know you I being think a part it was of it? it? I think that everyone that came, as far as I saw, including myself, enjoyed themselves very much, and I don't see you know anything wrong in enjoying yourself. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of rumors about other people like Ringo and Neil Young and Bob Dylan being yeah, on the show. Well, Did you people know anything about this? No. <laughs> Are you as far as I was concerned, it was, you know, I mean, John Belushi came, which is very nice of him, and uh, we figured that, you know, just the this band that the, the, they go on the road with now and stones was enough. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we, we never got about in here. By now, it's late enough as it is. Yeah. What is the uh, What are the plans? You recorded a number of albums before uh, Keith's sentence. Or not albums. I mean um, tracks well, for an track, album. But we always record a lot of tracks. Yeah. And you, then you've just been recording recently, haven't you? Yeah, we will record after this next tour. Mm -hmm. are, when, are you touring for the summer? No. When is the next Big Stones tour? When do you think you'll be back I here? I think the fall. Mm -hmm. Will you come back to Canada again? Sure. Uh, once we get this thing of Keith out of the way, then we can come back to Canada. Yeah. So you'll probably play Toronto sometime, hopefully, before Christmas again? Well, then we'd like to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay? Okay, well, thank you very much, Mick. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks a lot for letting me emcee your show. No problem, man. Great. Thanks, Keith. Keith's gone. Keith's gone. Keith's gone. Yeah, Keith's gone. Keith's gone. Keith's had to go. I'm yeah. going to go. Thanks, Mick. All right, thank very much. That's Keith Richards and Mick Jagger in conversation with journalist Cliff Lorimer in Oshawa, Ontario on April 22, 1979. Great bonus content from Famous Lost Words. <laughs> <laughs> 